So this is what they pay us for, pretty much. We need to improve their narrative. We need to make their community or like their potential clients, you know, impressed by them. So the way to do it is that we need to work on delivering the best narrative that we see for that particular company. So it's an obligation for a PR agency to make their presentation with the company to the best shape that it should look like. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Encrypted. We're the Middle East's largest podcast dedicated to crypto, blockchain, and the fintech ecosystems. I'm your host, Nick Watson. In today's episode, we talk about public relations and the blurring lines of promoting, community engagement, and shilling. Today's guests are Mohamed Halawani, the founder of CryptoPR.io, and David Waxman, the founder and CEO of Waxman's. Both our guests are leaders in the crypto and the blockchain PR space. This was a great episode for both Ahmed and I. We really enjoyed challenging Mohamed and David to the perception and the roles of PR in this space and the impact it has on the projects that they work with. Before I start, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, CoinsApp, a global social payments application for cryptocurrencies based on the Dan blockchain ecosystem. It empowers the world to send money around the world in seconds. You can find CoinsApp on Google and Apple Play stores now. I would also like to thank our listeners for supporting the show. Remember, you can support us by subscribing, rating, and sharing the show with your friends and your colleagues. And now, on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Encrypted. We have an amazing PR and communication episode today. We have our lovely guest, David Wachman from Wachman's PR and Mohamed Halawani from Crypto PR. Both say hello. Hello. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you too. We also have our lovely co-host, Ahmed Balagi. Say hello, Ahmed. What's up? How are you doing? I'm good. So we have a very, very interesting episode. We are going to delve into what is considered a, a positive and a negative industry in terms of the crypto world. Both our guests are experts in their field. They have worked on a global scale. They have different angles in how they approach the industry of communications. But let's first start with a quick intro from both of you. So, Mohanad, can you give a quick introduction of yourself and your organization and what you do and what you're working on at the moment? Sure, sure. So, first of all, let me say thank you for having us, Nick. Basically, my story with cryptocurrencies started not long ago. It was early in early 2017. I was having coffee with a friend of mine who's a banker at HSBC. And he brings up the subject of Bitcoin. And the moment that when he, when he brought it up, I knew what Bitcoin is, but back then it was considered like really kind of like you, you're going to be blacklisted if you buy Bitcoin back in the time in the Middle East. So back then he told me, well, now there's an exchange in the, in the Middle East and everybody is buying and you just can't buy in. And, and I just, at the time being, I was working with a large PR agency called Edelman. So by time, month after month, my fascination increased given that, you know, once I started buying in, into crypto and it was in early 2017, 
the only way I was seeing is up. So, so I, I'm buying, for example, let's say when I'm buying Ethereum at 200, the next day it, it jumps to, to 300. So I became, you know, really, really interested, not just in the technology, but also like, you know, that it's, it could be an exit for me from the corporate world. And also I was very fascinated about, you know, the communication industry. So back then there wasn't many, there was many ICOs coming out, but I haven't seen any of them going into PR, you know, like asking for like some PR support. So I thought I should create this PR agency in the Middle East because there's a lot of investments. Maybe we can localize projects in the region. So from this, I started Crypto PR. Obviously, I wanted to do to run a test. So I wrote Edelman, their first blockchain client in, in the Middle East, which afterwards, I feel that I have completed the entire chain of a PR business. So I landed a client, I managed the client, and I was really, really enthused and passionate about the blockchain and crypto industry. So a couple of months later, I decided to leave Edelman and started Crypto VR. And I walked into an event that was like $800 to access. It was in the Ritz-Carlton in the IFC, but I sneaked in. It was this really small decision, whether I should take this risk or not, that would really change my entire career path. So I walked in and there was like... 40 booths, all ICOs, looking to raise the range of 15 to $50 million. I was the only one pitching PR services. And on that day, it was the first time ever doing a freelancing kind of work. And I landed five clients. And from there, it started like the, the entire thing. A couple of weeks later, I registered Crypto PR and it just kicked off. So that is the story of crypto PR. A crash course entry into the crypto PR industry. <laughs> kind of. Everybody has a different, you know, approach basically. So absolutely, that was my my kind of aspect. Yeah. Awesome, David. Yourself. Well, I've been a great admirer of Hunt ever since the very beginning, and we had early conversations, and I was certainly cheering him on in the beginning, and he's built a remarkable organization and done tremendous work at Waxman. I started the agency in 2015, but my story in Bitcoin at comms actually began in early 2014, just after the Mt. Gox disaster. I was in New York. I was at a tech party in lower Manhattan, and I met the young CEO of a Bitcoin exchange that was a pioneering organization. They had raised a couple million dollars in venture funding, but at the time, there were maybe 15 Bitcoin exchanges of any relevance at all worldwide, and none of them had any trading volume. It was a pretty small industry. And regulation had not been figured out yet. This is a halcyon days before even the New York Bit license. Long story short, I started working with that Bitcoin exchange called Coinsetter. They sold in early 2016 to Kraken. And I fell in love. So in 2015, I figured I, I should also go on my own and, and, and start my own firm. And I started accumulating a number of Bitcoin clients. So one was a Bitcoin software wallet called Airbits. Another was a blockchain-focused VC, a hardware wallet called Trezor. They also had a mining pool called Slush Pool that was in a related entity. And a few other companies in the industry, a Bitcoin ATM network called Coinsetter, with only three ATMs at the time, and started Waxman. 
I got very, very lucky. Right place, right time. And with the background that I had in traditional communications, we did quite well. And Waxman grew from a one-man shop at the very beginning of 2016 to we currently have 65 employees between New York, Dublin, and Singapore that are our kind of global offices. And Waxman has represented, I would say, perhaps a plurality of the blue chips within the industry from token projects like Stellar and Hedera Hashgraph and Dash and Cardano and Chainlink and many, many others to some of the big global exchanges, to some of the big media properties, the big conferences, from consultancies to lawyers to tax products and on and on. Waxman represents in many ways the various different sectors of our industry. Right. I think from our perspective, the listener's perspective, both of you are working on a global scale. I think, Mohana, do you have a regional capacity as well in the region? Do you guys do you guys work together when it comes to regional projects? Well, you know, let me, let me also say, I forgot to mention, Waxman was an inspiration. So before starting the entire thing, I would assume like many, many agencies really kind of looked up to, to Waxman. So when you, when you started like the Google search in the beginning, like this is how I started Crypto VR. So I wanted to do a research as well to see like if there is any blockchain specific PR agency out there. And there I see like Waxman. So this is how I got in touch with, with David. So after getting like a couple of months after starting Crypto VR, Actually, actually, before starting Crypto VR, I got in touch with, with David and I wanted to see, like, to test the waters, you know, how is it going in this field? And being in the Middle East and him being in, in New York, of course, like, there was some collaborations during the journey. So if there's some interesting event happening in, in, that I happen to know from a friend that is based in the US, I would tell him about it. And also when there was like some clients that's based in, that are looking for exposure in the Middle East, we did collaborate. So so Waxman, I think that, you know, I'm like the, at the early stage of kind of like probably I'm, I'm in the place of Waxman when it was maybe in 2015 and 2016. So we're still small, but we are collaborating when it comes to whether like someone is coming to the Middle East or if there's someone who's, who needs help in like if I'm looking for a journalist that is probably connected with Waxman and I need to connect with them. So, of course, so we are collaborating when in need, basically. Awesome. Good. So PR agencies working together and helping each other out. It's always a, a very good sign in an industry that's quite competitive. And I've got to say, it's a really small space and we're all on the same team. For us, we want to go and increase the size of the pie. And the best way to do that is by having professional communications help advocate for an industry that's easily misunderstood. Yeah, this leads on to the next conversation, right? So you have two agencies working together and then you have your client base industry, which technically can involve regulators. It can also involve the companies themselves and the financiers and and all that that comes together. The biggest conversation that's really happening right now is when should a project engage a third party to help them communicate, right? So going from doing it themselves, whatever social they want or community engagement into I need someone to help me. Is, is there a, a critical juncture that you guys look for or you advise companies to make that decision? And make an assumption that a lot of people listening right now are people that are in the space 
that have done it before or they have not. And then you can just take it from there. So perhaps I'll jump in and, and Mohanad, please add on to what I have to say. But very often companies come to Waxman and to crypto PR, I'm sure, at moments of inflection. So that means something substantive has changed within their organization. Very often it's some sort of funding, like they've received a seed round or a series A. And what they're looking to do is make a lot of noise with that announcement, but for very specific purposes, like they want to hire people. And if you make an announcement that you've received funding and perhaps from very good investors, it stands to reason that as a potential employee, you could go and work at that firm. You're going to have job security. You're going to get your actual paycheck and that there might be a future, that there might be enough funding to build a product, to get it to product market fit, to put it on the market, sell it and start gaining market share. So that's among the moments of inflection. It might be a, a major hire, a product launch or release. These are the types of reasons why companies initially engage with the communications firm. They often stay for a different reason, which is the way PR works. You really need to, quote unquote, keep your foot on the gas pedal. If you actually relent even a little bit, if you take a break, what happens is people stop talking about you. That's what we've learned. So that's interesting, actually, because if, for example, you're a startup, you've done a seed round, you, you know, you've launched a new product. And of course, a lot of BD needs to come in a lot of and during the course of a, of a startup's journey, typically they'd add product features, you know, they would basically cater to client requests. And especially like in the blockchain community, there's like so much more to that as well particularly just in how the dynamics of whether the protocols work or, or you know, DeFi or sort of these gaming applications work, particularly on Discord. How do you sort of see these companies really adding gas to the pedal after that initial organic, you know, seed round or product release hype is actually done, right? Like, does there need to be continuous sort of hype in a way or what? Like, why does that really help the, the startup? Well, first of all, they need to deliver on their promises. So let's say, I don't know if you've seen this meme, but it's like the start of a drawing of a, of the back of a horse. And that's like the promises that they want to deliver. So like the, the painting starts to be very, very like perfect. And then when it reaches after the launch, it's basically that the rest of the horse is, is like drawn by a three year old. So this is how they describe a failing ICO project. And that happens when a project stops spreading news about what they're doing. It's a really big mistake when it, when it comes to like many, many projects. What they do is they spend so much on marketing to raise funds and then they just stop after raising their hard cap or whatever, like whichever stage they're in. The truth is the community needs to keep engaged. You know, they need to like if someone raises $30 million, give back something that would make the community feel that you are genuine. Most of the time what I see is there are lots of projects that decide not to go on a retainer contract with marketing agencies. What they do is they just publish a press release, and then they think that this press release is going to do them the entire sales pitch. The truth is, 
they need to keep on working, you know, they need to keep on delivering news to, to the world, you know, whether it's using Telegram. Actually, Telegram should be very, very active, you know, always active. But I would say, ideally, whenever there is an update to keep someone attracted to your website or to your product or service, there needs to be like so many announcements. So if you look at, let's say, Ethereum or Bitcoin, they made it to a level that they really do not need to spend on PR. They have so much interest. They built a strong community and people just talk about them, you know, nonstop. So that is because they they built for it. They they built this kind of interest. Mohammed, on, on that, to some extent, there's there's a number of different types of PR. Certainly, they don't need to be promoted. But they certainly do need to be protected. And crisis communications is part of what you know we do as well in our industry. And that is to say, a lot of times when companies are getting a lot of attention, they need to be very thoughtful and careful about how they're responding. This is, this is true of any large organization. They need to know when to pick their battles, and they need to know how to go and, and fight them deliberately. So when Waxman works with, let's say, a global exchange, we're working with a firm that is getting inquiries all the time. Loads of people are interested in many different stakeholders there. And sometimes the, the smart play is to be, well, reactive as opposed to proactive. Uh, of course, when you're working with a small startup, they're looking to differentiate, get through the very thick and heavy amount of noise that's out there in the, in the media landscape. But it depends on who you're working with. You mentioned something during the conversation about reactive and proactive, etc. So what is the difference between awareness, hype, shilling, general comms? Like, what is the boundary? What I would say is this. Shilling it sounds bad because it is. Shilling is when you're essentially selling something that no one wants to buy. And it comes off wrong. It comes off false. And you can just feel it in your bones. Hype is... is is let's call it organic interest. That's what we're really talking about here. People get excited about things, especially in this industry because it's so new and because it's so potentially and sometimes often actually is groundbreaking. So that's that's how at least I define it. But awareness is something else. When you walk into a grocery store and you're trying to choose between various different types of cereal, you almost certainly need to have an awareness about the brands that are on the shelf in order to go and make a, a decision as a consumer. So building awareness is critical for any organization that has any sort of product or service. They need to go and make sure that their specific audiences know who they are and what differentiates them from the competition, or even better, the perceived competition, because very often consumers don't actually know who your competitors are. So do you have any good examples of stuff that you've seen out there where, you know, let's try to do some opposites, where a great project ended up creating a shilling effect? I don't know if I can speak to any examples of that, but I think we've all seen it when we go to conferences and we've seen companies spend too much money on selling vaporware. I would say that's a really good example of times when you've seen companies attempt to shill. What I found is that the crypto industry is full of cynics, and that's one of the very best parts of it. That is to say, they don't trust what they're seeing and reading unless they get it from a number of sources, from trusted sources, and perhaps they can test it for themselves. This is probably due to the fact that there has been so many disappointments in the industry. And at this point, people, they don't want to be the boy who cried wolf. 
So they check things out, they investigate. And in fact, I'd say part of the job that Mohan and I have is figuring out what's real and what's not real. And, you know, we won't take on clients that don't pass our sniff test. So there is like a level of testing that we run or like due diligence, if you like, that before we start working with any project, we need to check their legitimacy. So things such as, let's say, is the project delivering, you know, a real solution to a real problem? Does the project have a team that is available that, that everybody can, can reach out to? Is the company listed on LinkedIn? These are some of the variables that make us find out if the project is legit. And often, many of the projects that are not on LinkedIn, most of the time, they might have, let's say, a red flag, unless they are based in another region. So let's say China, for example. But other than that, we do go through a rigorous due diligence for the clients that we do work for, because at the end, it reflects on our reputation as well. So it really, really matters, you know, to test up, to see, to check the validity of such project. And there are lots of projects that are not legit in this industry because pretty much it's, it's pretty new. This is one of the reasons. Did you guys get involved with white papers and review of what they're positioning in terms of their tech so you can grasp if there's a fundamental real value behind it? From our side, we do sometimes test the white paper. It's not, in my personal experience, it's not the main, the main factor to legitimize a company. What about you, David? So we certainly read white papers as part of our preparation when we're working with project. It's very important to understand the, the tech, understand the mission, and that's essential. If you're going to be helping tell a story, a company, you better know who they are and what they do. We don't review, we don't edit white papers if that's what you're asking, but we certainly think it's critical to read everything prepared by a company in advance. What they posted on, we conduct an audit. What have they conduct, posted on social in the past? What have they created and posted on their website uh, in the past? Where have they shown up and, and spoken at events? And, and what have they said while they're there? We try to do our very best to have an understanding of who a company is, what they're all about, what their future looks like. That helps us figure out how best to plan for the future. Before we continue, here's a quick word about our sponsor, CoinsApp. CoinsApp is a social payments application for cryptocurrencies based on the Dan blockchain ecosystem. It empowers millions of people to send money around the world in just seconds. A huge shout out to the team for building this platform and ecosystem. Please check it out on the Google and Apple Play stores now. I'm interested in sort of getting your opinion on crypto Twitter and that as a signal really for the, let's say, authenticity or, or the likability of a particular project. Because at least from what I'm seeing crypto Twitter these days, and particularly with sort of DeFi, you have the same sort of people and it's like a echo chamber really. And that sort of provides, let's say, you know, a good platform or a good standing ground for particular projects. And I think we're definitely past this ICO hard cap white paper era. I think that's all behind us. And I think we have had way better, let's say, due diligence tests for projects and whether or not they're actually, you know, fit to, you know, work with, for example. At least from what I see with these sort of DeFi projects, it's a bit hard to maybe 
audit the code and see if this is something that doesn't have a something that's buggy, which allows the developer to forcibly, let's say, remove any funds. But I would say in terms of sort of crypto Twitter and given this post-COVID life, right, where there's more things online as opposed to sort of conference style PR as well, how does that affect your work? I don't know about you, Mohana, but I think crypto Twitter is pretty toxic. And Ahmed, this, that, that's a great question. I think there's limited substance that appears on crypto Twitter. That having been said, if, if I'm looking for a silver lining, they do sometimes very rapidly flag errors, which is really helpful for projects. So this way they can go in and perhaps shut something down, find the bug and fix it. And crypto Twitter has been great for that. But a lot of the dialogue, it, it just becomes cacophonous, right? It's, it's not in any way productive. There's a lot of tribalism and there's that in an open source space. Yeah, crypto Twitter is a double-edged sword, I would say. Some of the community, or let's say, let's say the crypto whales, some of them refer to crypto Twitter at the time that if there's something that is really, really happening fast that, uh, you know, media outlets did not pick up on. So, so you could find having, finding some gem tokens on Twitter is something inevitable it happens. But on on that note as well, like out of 10,000 cryptocurrencies that are being marketed on Twitter, a couple of hundreds of them are probably like, would turn out to be legit. So it's very wild territory. You really don't know if the news that is coming out is legit or not. But we cannot deny that it's a very strong platform to influence someone to buy into a cryptocurrency or not. But again, for someone who's looking to invest in any token, it's better for them to do a due diligence on it. So the latest emergence of these yield farming tokens, if there's one thing that I want to say that it's kind of disappointing from the field of investment is that many of them doesn't have any fraction of legitimacy but yet they make a lot of returns. So let's say, for example, something relative to sushi. So you remember sushi. I mean, who would, like, the name sounds kind of ridiculous at the beginning. Many of the yield farming tokens, you, you see, like, someone to- calling, like, his token Saki token. There is someone calling pasta. So someone calling whatever. But at the end of the road, you would find them going 20 or 30x. And that's as a result from the Twitter marketing. You wouldn't see any of them going on mainstream media unless they reach this limit of like, let's say 50x or like something like that, such as sushi. But again, I agree with David. It is very toxic. You are gambling, basically, pretty much if you are relying only on crypto Twitter. That's my point of view, I would say. I was going to say, is it because of haters or is it just the language that people are using and the promises they're making and they're being called out on it? So it's one of the points we wanted to discuss here is that you could be a project that has amazing capacity and it doesn't exist, but you have your thoughts in the right place. But literally one wrong sentence or one wrong channel And suddenly you go from being this amazing, exciting project that doesn't have anything to being a vaporware project and you're toast overnight when the reality was you weren't given the chance. 
to just get your vision and your mission built? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many of these tokens, uh, more actually 99% of these tokens vanish overnight. It's easy to notice that they are very high risk because they don't have an email address. They don't have, they, their founders are concealed. You would find them on Twitter, on, on Telegram. They have a Telegram channel that is, that has probably 10,000 followers for this particular token. But don't forget that this is a big game for growth hacking. So many growth hackers play in this game, you know, and you can grow a community on Telegram or Twitter to, to multiple thousand followers that none of them actually have a clue that they're following this channel. So it's kind of clear, you know, like it's easy to notice which, which token that is going to get basically wrecked in, in, in crypto terms. I think, I think we're conflating a couple things, which is the way people talk about cryptocurrency, the blockchain industry on Twitter and investing in risky tokens. These are, these are in my mind, very different fields of play. So the, when I talk about crypto Twitter and its toxicity, I'm referring to the fact that, yeah, I think a, a lot of projects are being nailed and spoken ill of without just cause because someone has perhaps a vested interest in one of their perceived competitors or because it's the internet and it's a fun thing to do. That to me is toxic and not really productive. Much worse than that, of course, is the shilling, and I think that's the right word to use, of what are likely unregistered securities that are created by pseudonymous people. So if you had a, let's say, a, a really good project sitting in front of you right now, David, and they said, we have this amazing idea, we know exactly who we want to go after, this is the vision, this is the mission, how much of the time after you speak with them and maybe you take them on board as a client is dedicated to the type of language you will use when communicating to the external world. I'll give you a good example. About a month and a half ago, two months ago, we spoke to a company that had a great idea. They're called, actually, I'll tell you who they are. They're called ASIC Jungle. And ASIC Jungle is the very first real marketplace for used mining equipment. Let's call it secondhand mining equipment. This is a bigger field than you'd think. And they had this, as I said, great idea, but they weren't ready to market. They, they, they couldn't shop online and start taking on one side suppliers of ASICs and on the other side customers who would be purchasing them. Right now, all of the, the purchasing of, of secondhand ASIC equipment is done in telegram channels, very often by pseudonymous people. And, and I heard that, I essentially heard the pitch from these founders. And I was like, this is a great idea. Someone is professionalizing a space that right now is is quite archaic, but they weren't there yet. If we had started working with them at that point in time when they first told me that story, there wasn't much we could have done for them. It certainly wouldn't have been good value for their money at that point in time. But about a month, month and a half later, they were ready to launch. And so therefore we could get in, demo the product, understand what we were, what we were seeing and begin to help them create language, create a strategy to, to launch and, and capture the attention first of the supply side, and then eventually of the buy side of people who are going to be actually purchasing these ASICs. They had to have an awareness first, and they had to have some supply of inventory for anyone to actually buy in the first place. So, so as you can see there, it, it became a bit of a strategy, a strategic thinking of when do we engage in the first place? And then once we engage, what's the cadence of events that's going to lead to this company being successful? And that's kind of how we think through it with every client with which we engage. 
you mentioned a bit about the story and the language. Do you guys spend a lot of time on actually, let's say, delivering a storytelling workshop or a sort of a mission or or a vision type workshop and sort of packaging that for your clients? And is that something that you would sort of say, okay, you guys still haven't got it in stone. We we should help you do that and take it forward from there. Yeah. So I can speak for Waxman. We recently started with a public company. I won't say which one. And the very first month of our engagement is nailing down the narrative. That's what we're doing. And it's a rigorous process where we're going to be interviewing many, many different stakeholders, getting a, a thorough understanding of who they are and what their mission is, and then working very closely with them in a sense of a partnership, essentially, to help figure out what they should be saying going forward, because it's going to be important that they're consistent about the new narrative once it's delivered. So this is what they pay us for, pretty much. We need to deliver... We need to improve their narrative. We need to make their community or like their potential clients, you know, impressed by them. So the way to do it is that we need to work on delivering the best narrative that we see for that particular company. So doing otherwise would rather result in really not doing anything, you know, for the company except for profiting from them, basically. So, no, it's an obligation for a PR agency to make their presentation of the company to the best shape that it looks like, basically, that it should look like. So we would, I, like in crypto PR, something that we live by for our clients, we have a quote, we tell them always, like once we share with them, like any, let's say, marketing proposal, we have at the end of the proposal, something means saying, compete with the immortals. And it's a quote that is said by David Ogilvy. So yeah, compete with the immortals. So if you want to compete with the immortal, then you need to see the way that, how did they see it? And from there, like, try to build a narrative to make this company look interesting. So yeah. Okay, so so let's say you have a company that just raised its seed and they want to improve the narrative and they they want to showcase, you know, to the industry and beyond what they're doing, how they're doing it, and really showcasing that that vision and mission. Seed rounds typically last a company, let's say, 16 to 18 months, maybe 12 months if they're really you know, growing hard. Would you advise them, of course, for your benefit, I'm sure you would, on a monthly retainer? Or would you guys sort of go on a sort of, let's say, three months, let's do it, do it all outright, and then working on whenever they just need it? whenever they just need, let's say, an awesome press release or an awesome release on a particular feature. Because, of course, as I'm sure you guys are aware, you know, now lots of projects are raising way less than ICOs did before. So they're raising, let's say, I see 1.5 million, 2 million, a million dollars, 2.5 million, around around those ranges. And yeah, I was just wondering, like, are you seeing sort of a shift between companies employing, let's say, PR companies on a sort of a strict 12-month retainer basis, or is it more, let's say, three months, and then it's sort of an ongoing relationship? Probably it's a different model between CryptoPR and Waxman. In in the case of CryptoPR, we give the clients the freedom of, so we, we give them a couple of options, respecting the budgets that they have. But to be honest, at the end of the road, you know, it's about what they're looking to achieve. If their goal is to achieve something within a three-month term, then ideally we would run a campaign for them in three months. If they're looking for something that is going to be in the long term, then ideally they should go 
on a retainer period, on a retainer contract. But we always offer the flexibility of going on a one-time project, you know, and they can come back to us whenever they need us. So we're following this kind of model. We're not really strict in telling them, yeah, you have to go on a, on a yearly retainer. So it really depends. That's from our aspect. I don't know, like, how would Waxman do it? But yeah, David, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. You can't take a seed round company and, and ask them to go and sign a year contract. I think that's it's a little bit outrageous, right? They don't even know if they are going to be paying themselves, the founders, for the course of a full year. And so if you want to work with startups, you need to be flexible. Absolutely, 100%. Some of our clients are very established companies. They are projecting out their budgets for two fiscal years from now. Those are different types of organizations. But a seed round business What's important for them is achieving product market fit. So, right. So usually the seed is achieved with a really good idea and maybe a bit of a product that's been developed. But to get that A and to get over that A wall, what they're going to need to do is showcase product market fit. And communications is a big part of that, but they are tight on budget. Once they're past A, you're still seeing, certainly in this industry, B's and C's are very substantial. Then they have a robust marketing organizations with substantial budgets, including and far beyond earned media, which is essentially what most PR is. And they have a paid spend and they can do advertising and they could be sponsoring and, and things of that nature. So to get them there and to help them graduate, you need to be flexible when it comes to contract terms. And so Waxman is too. So at the moment, we've seen a lot of, a lot of companies go from having zero presence to having a huge amount of presence. So obviously they've done something right in terms of getting themselves out there. But there are pros and cons to being out there, especially if you're in the cryptocurrency space, right? So what is your advice to, let's say, a project or a startup or a group or anonymous or not, in terms of getting their their awareness out there, but in a space that's potentially regulated or unregulated? Because it you know, when you're out there, you might get lots of friends, but you also might get a few enemies. And that's mainly from regulators, for example, or competing companies. What, what are your opinions on this? Especially you, David, I think you, you brought it up a bit earlier. The very first bit of advice we give most companies is hire a lawyer if you don't have one already, and preferably a good one. We're very happy to make referrals to firms that have been doing this for quite some time that really know the industry. And if you're entering new markets, be sure to go and hire a law firm there that has subject matter expertise. It's preferable for these companies, even very large ones, to not be paying lawyers gobs of money to, to learn the basics. Probably best to hire a firm that's done this before. And at this point, the industry is 10 years old. And so you're likely to find a really well-credentialed firm that has experience to help you. And a communications firm should work in close tandem with a law firm with local law firms to make sure that messages are not only interesting because lawyers don't always write the most interesting copy, but at the same time can be regulatorily compliant. And so firms need to be thoughtful of that when they're budgeting and when they're determining how they're going to go and, and launch into a new market. They've got to be very, very careful. One very good example, they, they really need to be working with really good legal firms, you know, because Look at what happened to many, many companies that happened to be questioned by the SEC lately. But yeah, so at the end of the of the road, they need to be working with, before they make any step in this world, they need to really ask the necessary questions just to be safe. 
to avoid any kind of harassment from authorities, I would say. It depends really on the jurisdiction as well and the type of the crypto company, whether it's like, could be like a DeFi project, could be like an exchange, whether it's like a solution provider, if it's something that provides a solution to the government or is it to P2P. So it really depends. It depends on this kind of service. It depends on where they are based. So yeah, but at the end of the road, I agree with David. They need to seek advice from law firms with expertise. Okay, so let's say you've got an amazing company, but let's talk about the DeFi space, right? So this is obviously the new hot sector. You've got decentralized exchanges, automated market makers, people airdropping coins and tokens and whatever else you want to call it. And essentially, they they call it farming, but really they're farming you for your capital. So how, how would you guys like to define the DeFi space and what type of companies would you like to work with in the DeFi space. So what I can tell you is this is really exciting because it gives at the very at first blush people an, an actual use for their crypto as opposed to just quote unquote hodling. That's a, that's an exciting innovation in and of itself. I do think it's really exciting that we're going to be able to bring real world assets, perhaps through synthetic assets, into DeFi. I think that's fascinating too, and I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why we've seen so much excitement around oracles and really base level infrastructure that's going to allow these types of solutions to exist in the future. Some of them, the winners of these, perhaps in the long term, perhaps some of these haven't launched yet. And I do think that regulators are going to be paying closer and closer attention to DeFi as it becomes an increasingly large slice of the pie. Right now, it's in very nascent stages, but perhaps whichever places are most accommodating to DeFi Perhaps those are the places, in terms of regulation, perhaps those are the places where you're going to see really fascinating DeFi projects originate. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually just like, I'm just thinking out loud here. I mean, how would a DAO, let's say, how would a DAO sort of come in and take out, for example, a, a PR firm and say, you know what, do this work for us? <laughs> would there have to be a vote <laughs> on? <laughs> I'm just thinking out loud here, like, how would that actually work in practice? I'm not sure. I don't know if you guys are like servicing these real decentralized projects or, or these DAOs. It'd be really interesting to see that. So in fact, Waxman was hired starting in July of 2016 to work with what I'm going to call the first functional DAO, and that's Dash, Dash Core. So Dash Core posed to hire us, but the Dash network, that is to say the master nodes, voted to approve the hiring of Waxman. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Dash for three years. And was a an absolutely remarkable experience, and I think that the team at Dashcore is remarkable, and the community is outstanding too. And it is a it's a totally different beast. This is something that the big, huge global agencies, you know, the ones that Mahan and I have worked at before, they don't quite get now or get yet. Is how do you work with a decentralized entity in the first place? Yeah. It is different. You have to show your work in a very different way, right? You don't have necessarily one client to impress with the product so far. You might have to communicate this in public forum. It's fascinating. Yeah. And do you think that's what the future of communications would look like? I would say we added new pages to the book of communications. I would say that, you know, and the big credit of that goes to David as well. So since he's one of the early starters in this agent and this field and specifically blockchain PR, you know, it's something that something interesting that you would notice that when 
these blockchain enterprises came into existence, along with it came a new type of PR agencies. Very rarely you would see a traditional PR agency or a marketing or a communication agency doing the work for a crypto-specific company, at least the way I see it in my region, so in the, in the Middle East. Yeah. So it rather requires a different level of expertise. I remember when I when I wanted to leave for leaving Edelman, I sat with, with the CEO in Dubai and I told him I will I will open a blockchain department for Edelman within a couple of months. <laughs> but he didn't get it, you know, like they didn't really see the, the potential. So along with blockchain came a PR specialized in blockchain. So yeah. I really wish that, you know, they get to nominate us for some of the PR awards. Uh, I don't know, David, have you, have you guys been invited to some of the, like, let's say, Holmes Report event or Can Lions? Did they give you guys any, any attention? Like, I I'm not seeing them giving any attention to crypto PR and crypto marketing, do they? Like this traditional PR entities. Well, it's, it's increasing, I, I'd say. Yeah, now that our industry is being considered. Waxman actually was, was recently named by Inc. Magazine as the 405th fastest growing company in America. And we're starting to see that type of recognition because, as I said, this is a maturing industry. There are now companies that are backed by the, the world's best investors that have great products that are out there, great services that they've been selling perhaps for years, real revenues. And if that comes to your point, really great service companies that have specialized knowledge. And I think when you're talking about advanced finance, when you're talking about emerging technologies, you really do need to ride that learning curve in the first place. So you can tell the difference between your client and competitors. And so, and this is where it really gets interesting to tell stories to reporters. Reporters are, especially in this industry, they know their stuff. They really do. And they are massive cynics. They think almost nothing is interesting. And the reason for that is because they've heard that all before. So if you went and, and you had no knowledge about the industry and you said, I have the greatest things since sliced bread. Well, a reporter is going to take two looks at it and for two seconds. And they're going to say, I'm sorry, but this has been, this is essentially copying and pasting a press release from 2015. We know that every other project, every other layer one protocol says that they've solved the, the trilemma of security, privacy, and scalability, right? So, why, why should we believe this as an example? Yeah, I think to, to link to both your points, right? I mean, I would say we're still like, it's great that we're maturing, but still at a, I would say at a slow pace. It's great to see public companies as well buying Bitcoin. I think that adds greatly to the narrative. But I mean, to go to your point, you know, you need specialist PR agencies and this industry, luckily, you know, is filled with specialist investors. And you look at all these different rounds and where they're in sort of raising money from are from crypto specific investors because traditional venture would typically not touch any of this stuff. Valuations are different. The way they think about things is different as well. And so it's going to be really interesting to see when the two will actually merge in the future. I think they're more at a sort of like sitting across the table, just like looking at what's going on as opposed to being really actively involved. And I think we're, we're still some time away, but I think that gap is getting closer and closer. Before we wrap up, actually, we do a quick sort of 
fire round questions for, for our guests. First question is, if Bitcoin and Ethereum were at the edge of a cliff, which one would you save and why? Well, I'd say Bitcoin for sure. I think Ethereum is remarkable and they've done some amazing things in this space so far. And I'm really looking forward to F2. But Bitcoin is by far the most important project in the space. No question. Yeah, I would agree as well. Yeah. I think we need some ETH maxis in the next show, uh, Nick. So, <laughs> yeah, has anybody ever had more than one child <laughs> on this chat? <laughs> would you apply the same method? <laughs> you know, no one's brought down Ethereum. There's a lot of F killers out there. And a lot of them certainly have tech that's faster, tech that's more scalable. That's, that all exists today. Uh, absolutely nobody has built something better than Bitcoin for what it really is. Interesting. Interesting. The second question is, what's your favorite ice cream? Mohana, what do you think? Me? Uh, sugar-free vanilla. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm, uh, it's, it's a funny thing. You mentioned this question when I'm thinking of having an Okay, I would say Hagen does. You know, there is one that has caramel and um, you know what? Let's let's make it simple. Chocolate chip cookie. Yeah, we got to go. Yeah. It's cookie dough for me. Absolutely. All the way. Yeah. 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 That's the one. That's the one. Cookie dough. Yeah. Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> cool. And number three is what's your most favorite book that you've recently read or have read in the past couple of years? I think uh, Flash Boys by Michael Lewis is fascinating. It takes a look at HFT, high frequency trading, and how technologists came up with a solution to essentially slow down networks to make things fair in equities trading. Nice. Brilliant book. I like, I like, there's a, a small book called The Decision Book. It doesn't tell a story. It has just some theories, like how would you tackle some some issues that you might be facing whether it's in business, whether it's in your normal life. So it's, yeah, decision book. It's, it's kind of theoretical. It's not kind of, but, but it's based on, on people that in the past have built these kind of theories that are proven. But yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Nice. And given that you mentioned the book Flash Boys, right, David? I think there's an, a piece that was written by this very smart, smart contract developer in the space called Phil Diane. So the name of the paper is actually called Flash Boys. And it basically talks about the mempool and how lots of trades are being basically front run on, on the mempool by trading bots. And potentially, and talks about how miners could come in and basically run these trading bots or, or front run these opportunities themselves. I wonder if he got that name from this book. <laughs> because when he said Flash Boys, I automatically thought of that paper. So, yeah. I've got to read that. Absolutely. Please I'll send you a link. I'll send you a link by email. It's, it's an incredible paper. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys, for jumping onto the show. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, how could they get in touch? From my side, you can visit crypto-br.io. That's our website. You can reach out to me on Telegram at Mohanet Crypto BR or at Ned Crypto BR. So that is from my side. And at Waxman, just go to Waxman.com. Looking forward to meeting you. Awesome. Great. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much, guys. Great chat, guys. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.